Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. This week we're talking about clean water technology. Like much of the rest of the country, we've been both fascinated and horrified by what's been going on in East Palestine, where a catastrophic train derailment resulted in a huge toxic chemical disaster that's likely to affect both the physical and economic health of people in that region for years to come. So, of course, we wanted to find out what's being done to protect our water if something like that ever happened here. To do that, we talked to Jeff Bronowski, who manages the City of Akron's Water Supply Bureau, which pumps over 30 million gallons of water per day to 300,000 customers in more than a dozen different communities throughout Summit County. So that's like the number one first step. In addition, if something does happen outside of the lands that we own, this land creates a buffer for runoff. You don't have these direct connections into the streams that would have this immediate impact on the treatment process. So there's a lot of buffer. There's a lot of like environmental protection with regards to wetlands that do natural ways of filtering out pollutants and contaminants as well. So all of that is like the first and initial step. We have a watershed division within drinking water as part of an operating division. Very few communities in the state of Ohio, quite frankly, across the United States, own the amount of property and have the ability to do what we have. So we have nearly a dozen staff members in the watershed protection group that are out sampling the rivers, the streams, the lakes on a regular basis. They're constantly doing a host of environmental protection activities throughout the watershed. They're working with all the agencies that have responsibilities within the watershed. So it may be ODNR, it may be the Army Corps of Engineers, it may be the health departments within these communities, it may be the EPA. All of those have some type of like responsibility with regards to watershed protection. So it could be sand and gravel operations, oil and gas operations. So we have staff that's dedicated to those specific items, which I am very confident that many communities don't have that. Next, Jeff explains why the East Palestine derailment, which happened about 76 miles southeast of Akron, didn't affect our water supply. As you listen, you'll hear him refer to the Continental Divide, which was confusing to me because I always thought that was out west, along the crest of the Rocky Mountains, which it is. But it turns out there's actually another one, the Continental Drainage Divide, which runs through northern Ohio. We get our water from the Great Lakes watershed, okay? So we are north of the Continental Divide, which ultimately runs east to west across the, the state of Ohio. Our drinking water supply is on the north side of that east to west line. That line pretty much runs through Summit Lake, and ultimately any water, any rains, any anything that happens north of that east-west line ultimately ends up in Lake Erie. We're drawing our water from the upper Cuyahoga River watershed, which we draw through our Lake Rockwell Reservoir. And 
So there is no connection to anything south of the divide. Now, East Palestine is located south of the divide, and anything that happens south of the divide ultimately ends up in the Ohio River Basin that ultimately ends up in the Mississippi. So if you follow this story, you may hear of like the city of Cincinnati being concerned and the city of Louisville being concerned because that's ultimately where all of that runoff, all of that pollution will ultimately go. It will ultimately go to the Ohio River. It will ultimately go to the Mississippi. And then it will ultimately go to the Gulf of Mexico simply because of the hydraulics that exist. So we would be greatly concerned if a derailment were to happen in the upper Cuyahoga River watershed. But like I mentioned earlier, there are no major train lines that travel across. Our primary concern would be like the Ohio Turnpike, which runs east to west, or Route 14, which is on the northern limits of, of Lake Rockwell Reservoir. So those would be our biggest concerns and what we prepare for in our emergency management plans. So, yeah, you mentioned a lot of things that I find interesting. One of them being, once you have a spill, you mentioned that you have these wetlands, which provide kind of a natural filtering. It goes through the weeds and the sediment and all that, and it kind of filters it out. But what if it went past the wetlands and it got to let's say the water plant. I, I know you have filtering there. Are there filters that can take even that kind of stuff out of it? Or, or once it's in there, that's that? If this contamination event that we speak of were to ultimately make it into Lake Rockwell Reservoir, one of the initial line of defense beyond the natural line that we talked about is we have a staff that is specifically trained in emergency response and hazmat response. We have fully stocked hazmat trailers. And in these hazmat trailers, you have adsorbent pads, you have different types of slick booms, you have sandbags, you have a whole host of like absorbent materials that are available to us and ready and waiting in the event that there was some type of, of catastrophic spill. All right, secondarily, we do have flexibility in turning off the water plant in the event that we would see a slug of contamination coming down the river and then ultimately into the lake. We can turn off the water plant for a short amount of time and let that pass by. So that's another option. In the case where it may ultimately come into the water plant, we have a very advanced treatment system that is in operation 24 7, 365, and has the ability to ramp up to even further treatment to take on any type of unique situation beyond what we typically experience. So, we have a whole host of chemical means of treatment. We have oxidation that's available to us through sodium permanganate, chlorine dioxide, sodium hypochlorite that oxidize any contaminant that would be coming through. They control taste and odor, control biological growth. They remove iron and manganese. The chlorine would kill pathogens and viruses that may come into the treatment process. We also have, and are very proud of a recent upgrade we've made in the last couple of years, of a new powder-activated carbon facility that uses powder-activated carbon to adsorb contaminants 
And this is one of our primary tools we may use for like algal toxins. You may remember, you know, maybe five, six years ago, the city of Toledo experienced the shutdown of their water system because of algal toxins. We have things like powder activated carbon available to us. We also have alum, which coagulates any of the oxidized contaminants, as well as any of like your sediments that would flock together onto this alum. And we get that to sell out through a sedimentation process, as well as a very fine rapid sand filtration process. So there's a host of different layers and depending on the raw water quality coming into the plant, including possibly an extreme situation like going on with the train derailment, we are able to quickly adjust treatment and do everything we have with these multiple tools to minimize and eliminate the risk that the uh, contaminant would have. So if you had a chemical along the lines of what spilled in East Palestine, you mentioned that there's these various coagulants, there's things that oxidize the different kinds of salts, essentially, that help you oxidize this. Would those work against essentially what's like a component of paint or solvents or something like that? Would would that work or not? What's interesting is there's not a lot of research out there on those specific chemicals. As we've looked and debriefed on their situation, because that's one of the strategies for utilities who train on is learn from these other disasters throughout. And there's very limited best available technologies in order to treat this. So what we have and the way in which we would react is utilizing these large overarching proven chemical treatment and mechanical means of treatment like powder activated carbon, like alum, like all the oxidation processes and rely on those to eliminate the vast majority of risks. But there's limited research on those specific chemicals. And I think partly because it's not a situation that has resulted in a lot of investment. Like, so what typically happens is like, for example, like algal toxins that I mentioned earlier, there's been a recognition that, hey, these algal toxins can be a risk on utilities. And so it it then creates a lot of funding for researchers to find out what the best available technology are for those and then funding for utilities like ourselves to take advantage of to put in like we did with powder activated carbon facility. So that's going on right now with the PFOA and PFOS. A lot of money and investment is going into research, is going into even determining like the state of Ohio did a vast sampling program for PFOA and PFOS to identify, okay, where are the utilities that have this? Should we regulate it? Up to what levels should we regulate it? And when we do regulate it, what are the technologies that are out there in order to remove these? And that's kind of historically the way in which regulations get created, as well as treatment techniques and treatment technologies get developed. It's unfortunately, it's a long process. So what's typically used in response 
to the uniqueness of something like this spill is to utilize a lot of the adsorption, flocculation, sedimentation, oxidation, and filtration processes that have been proven effective for many, many years. But communities that would, and Akron does not, I, I need to reassure we've sampled uh, most specifically for the vinyl chloride, which we know is one of those chemicals that spilled in the derailment. And like many utilities, we've not found that in our raw water supply. And so there hasn't been a need to specifically implement technologies or find technologies that could somehow remove that. But a lot of these other methods that I mentioned is like the primary response. And if we're not able to get it past the water plant, then we implement these other overarching treatment techniques that have proven effective. Right. Because as I'm thinking about it, I'm imagining, for example, if you were down like in the Gulf of Mexico or something and they have those big oil spills, you see them deploy the big booms and and they have absorption and they use various detergents to kind of break up the slick and that kind of thing. It's like it's big, it's globules, it's oil. And with algae, you can see the algal blooms and you filter it first and then you do the treatment, et cetera. But with something that's like this, what was it, vinyl chloride? Vinyl chloride, I know was one of them, yes. Right. So that's kind of, I would imagine, like a clear chemical. And I mean, I suppose you could absorb some of it in a big cotton boom, but it wouldn't be the same as absorbing oil. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is there is some research, but not a lot of it into that kind of thing. I remember when I used to live in Dayton and I was covering the news down there, there was a big spill of some chemicals, they called them PCBs, into the Miami River. And at least for a while after that, they were telling people, you know, just don't fish in the river. Just don't do that. And then in the intervening years, I've heard that that is a type of chemical that's one of those forever things. It's like once it's there, it's there. So I guess you could get to a situation with a certain waterway or a certain supply of water that if it's got X kind of chemical in it, it's just never going to go away. And I guess that's what they're concerned about there in East Palestine. Like maybe you don't have a major concentration of it now, but over the years, it's going to get into that sediment and it's just going to keep wearing away and wearing away and and getting into people's water supply. And they're worried about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I concur with that. And that's kind of why I feel Akron has had the best strategy compared to others in the watershed protection and essentially the preventative side of minimizing the industry, minimizing the, you know, the the transportation, the train traffic, the vehicular traffic to some degree, because we just own so much of this property that in itself, it protects just by avoiding as many situations that could come up as part of that process. Yeah, you know, I think this is all a really good review for people who are going to be listening to this, because a lot of times, at least I know over the years when I've heard about people getting all up in arms about watershed protection and wetlands and all that, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, it's a swamp. It was a big deal. Well, this kind of explains that, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's very important to us. And I mean, this dates back, like the Akron water system started in 1913. And it started as just a couple thousand acres just north of Kent. And over 
the last hundred years, even as most recently as two years ago, Akron continues to buy property, protect property. We, for example, purchased a trailer park that was near Lake Rockwell Reservoir, and we completely eliminated the trailer park. We relocated those residents. We eliminated the pollution, and we essentially restored that trailer park land to its natural purposes, and then applied a conservation easement on that trailer park land. So forevermore, that piece of property, which was pretty close to our primary reservoir, Lake Rockwell, would in no way compromise the drinking water for the city of Akron. And so that process continues to go on day in and day out, and it served to be a great strategy. We continue to provide excellent water quality. You know, we're, we've had record-breaking water quality results on a host of different contaminants, including lead. Uh, we're very proud of our lead service and our lead corrosion control program as well. So all of it, though, just like it's all encompassing. It's watershed work, it's treatment work, and then it's in distribution as well. I mean, there are ways to manage a distribution system to protect our drinking water supply as well. So, and that would be kind of like the lead remediation projects uh, that we have going on and a lot of the tank maintenance processes and, you know, a lot of the ways in which we store water and distribution as well and doing that with a water quality. It's not just about supply, it's quality as well in distribution. So all those things come together to try to provide the best possible product we can to our customers. If all that sounds pretty complicated and hard to manage, it is, which is where our next guest, Christopher Miller, comes in. Miller is an associate professor in the Department of Civil Engineering at the University of Akron and is the CEO and founder of Fontis Blue, which supplies advanced drinking water analysis software to utilities in a number of different cities throughout the United States, including the city of Akron. Our company was founded to provide digital solutions and support for drinking water utilities so that they could provide exceptional water to their customers every day. We have been working with the city of Akron now for about seven years and also the city of Barberton and Ravenna are kind of in our core triad of when we first started the company. It will be six years ago now when we've uh, had our first place at the Bounce Innovation Hub in downtown Akron. And we've now since expanded to eight states uh, across the country and supporting uh, whether it's algal toxins or the PFAS. As these emerging contaminant type issues, again, we've found ways to support these utilities so they can try and provide the highest water quality possible to the consumers. When I was talking to Jeff from the city of Akron, he was explaining to me the various ways that they filter the water, whether it starts in the wetlands and then they go through various chemical filters and things like that. It sounds like to me though, but what you do is you support those kinds of physical activities with some software oversight and management and kind of monitoring water quality. I wonder if you could tell me more about that. What is it exactly that you guys do? Sure. So it's kind of what we're doing currently and then what's on the near-term horizon. So currently, even like a lot of the plants along that are concerned about ever having this, they have in their toolbox in the treatment plant, powdered activated carbon is what the city of Akron has that they can put in 
Uh, it was about 16 years ago, they had a big taste and odor event. So it really wasn't a health issue, but it was a, a nuisance type issue and the water was smelling. And so they were able to put in this powder activated carbon that can remove that smell from the water. That same carbon can also remove any contaminants of concern. So if there's ever an algal toxin or a spill, City of Akron would actually would apply this carbon and it behaves and acts much like a refrigerator filter. So that's kind of what's sort of the current, at least specific to Akron. Other places have actual contactors full of carbon that, that can remove this. The uh, Cincinnati has this in place. They put it in in the early 90s in case there ever was a major spill on the Ohio River that, you know, they would actually still have to be pulling from the river. They want to be able to remove these things. So that's kind of the current status of things. And so how do dose effectively, cost effectively monitor, you know, that's what's built into our software. What's on the future is this interaction, though, between what the utility themselves can do and the information and impact of their activities and things they can provide to the consumer to help support them in changing their refrigerator filters. I think even three years ago, we may have alluded or chatted about there's only so much the utility themselves can do, but it does have a downstream impact on the end user. And so we've been doing some work and some calculations looking at, even again for the city of Akron, that if they increase treatment, which they're not required to do, okay, but if they increase the level of treatment, what are the downstream benefits? Well, there's some health benefits, fewer carcinogens in the water, and there's also some economic benefits. Your refrigerator real filter will be efficient for a longer period of time, remove more of the bad stuff that's actually in there. So we're actually beginning to look at sort of this interface between the responsibility of the utility beyond compliance. Like Akron has no issues, does an awesome job at being compliant, but if they actually do some above and beyond, how can we find both the quality and economic benefit to their customers? Okay. So explain for people, let's say the average person listening wants to know, okay, exactly what is it that Fontas does for a water facility? What do you provide and what value do you bring to them then? They're required to do lots of water quality monitoring, but oftentimes these are simple measures. We take a lot of those simple measures and put them into a forecast. Let's call it like a forecast, much like with the weather. You know, if you the weather, if it's going to rain, you take your umbrella. So in our case, if it's forecasting, what they don't want is going to be higher. They can take action and re- increase their treatment, do things that will reduce that forecast and get it back to a level they're more comfortable with. And again, it's what we call an exceptional water mindset because they're already compliant. If you're just compliant, you have a compliance mindset that doesn't, you know, sort of push trying to optimize and really do things in a better fashion. So we take that information, do complicated calcs, data mining, machine learning type activities that become useful for their operators so they can make decisions that, again, benefit not only utility in terms of their operational expenses, but again, even improving the quality. We say better quality at less expense, which seems like sort of panacea, but it actually is what they've been doing now for the last about five or six years. So essentially with this software that you have, then as you're monitoring the quality of the water, 
this software can tell them you need XYZ more chemical over here and XYZ less chemical over there. Is that how it works? Correct. And it's that like with the weather, you're mostly concerned about just, you know, temperature, rain or something. They actually have five, six, seven different water quality key parameters, you know, lead and copper, you know, these different things that they have to balance and they can't all just like go the same direction. They are making trade-offs and decisions. And so it's helping them understand this may get 2% worse, but this will get 20% better. And the net of all that is, again, for the benefit of their their customer. I see. So the reason why I wanted to talk to you today is kind of in the backdrop of what's been going on in East Palestine. The kinds of chemicals that have gone into the air and water, specifically the water there, are pretty toxic chemicals. And I'm not sure whether they fall into the category of PFAs, the forever chemicals. They might. And as I was talking to Jeff, he was saying that really they have some filtering technologies, but there isn't a lot of research on these forever chemicals in terms of exactly what you can do to filter them out completely, that there needs to be more research. Do you know anything about how people can, at least given the current tools that they have, manage these kinds of events better? Yeah. So from the public's perspective, the one consuming the water, I think that the simple, so like brushing your teeth every day, changing the water filter, making sure you have a good certified water filter for the water that you drink, you know, I think is the simplest, most direct course of action. For the water utilities themselves, again, most that have, even along the Ohio River, have this powdered activated carbon, or like I said, Cincinnati has these huge granular activated carbon contactors that they have in place that are for just removing and trace levels of pesticides and all this sort of potpourri of things that go in. There's quite a bit of research right now with the forever chemicals and will lead to the other ones that they're at such low levels, parts per trillion, they may not be amenable to being removed by this granule activated carbon. So you need these ion exchange resins that are specific to smaller molecules and things. So Research is pretty heavy in that, and we're actually doing some feasibility study work for the city of Akron, trying to think about, you know, this is more of a 20 years out, 30 year, like if we put in advanced treatment now, what will we put in that could at least stand the test of time for the next 30, 50 years? And so we're looking at some combinations of these advanced treatment options, even for the city right now. So and hopefully they don't ever have to use them, but that we'd want to make the investments now and make sure that they wouldn't miss something. So that research is going on and analysis right now as we speak. Yeah, I guess as we think about this, the people there in East Palestine, and I would imagine people really anywhere, you're drinking the water, you know there's going to be a certain amount of chemicals in it. You you accept that because that's the way the world is today. But what the major concern is, is does there ever get to be a time where it's just so saturated, you just simply would never be able to drink the water again? Yeah, I again, I think Flint obviously is a good example of this, even like the history of what, what happened and then what's happened since then in terms of having filters and removing the risk. 
and then a plan to completely remove the risk by getting rid of lead service lines. The city of Dayton has contaminated groundwater that's been contaminated for a long time. They're looking at potentially, there's a just was released, so this is public information, a request for a proposal for to look at putting in one of these granular activated carbon ion exchange resin facilities. This could probably cost $300 million. So I've never seen where like an area that served the large enough population, you know, with like this case of Dayton, they're going to have to remove these trace levels and treat it because there's so many people that rely on it. There's just not a good feasible option. And that's really interesting to me. And the reason why is because I worked for many years in Dayton. And during that time, there was this big deal spill into the Miami River of something they called PCBs. And Mm -hmm. after that, they were like, don't fish in the river. But they never said, don't drink the water. They just said, don't fish in the river. I mean, is this from that or is this something different? Actually, they believe it's from right pat and Uh it's the groundwater that's been contaminated, not the river. It literally is going to be there for a long, long time. And and there's quite a few people that rely on that. And they've looked at alternate well sources and, you know, well fields and drilling and all this. And it's like it just going to be extremely expensive to go that route. It's going to be easier to just treat it. So. I mean, maybe you don't know this, but my first question would be if the federal government was to blame, if it was coming from the, and it was going to cost $300 million, I'd have my hat in my hand and I'd be knocking well, on some doors well, in Washington. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, that's a, a pretty good, I, I forget if there's been some settlements, I don't know what's been disclosed, but I, I do believe that yeah, the city of Dayton is confident that they're going to have some resources that this won't fall on just their customers, right, to pay for this, right? So Yeah, that I mean, that's good because just yeah. like Akron, their customers aren't what you'd call really super wealthy. And it, I mean, the, the city like Akron has been losing population for years and years. So it's not like their population base could actually support a $300 million facility right now. Right. Well, and we've seen, I mean, Akron's collection system is about a billion dollars for all this combined sewer overflow work and, um, you know, over the last 25 years or whatever. And that's been a significant economic burden. You know, most of that's been passed on to customers. So I know I see it in my water bill every month. It's like my water and sewer combined total is maybe $30, but my bill is 120. I live alone. You know, and it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm paying for the sewers. Well, it's good. I mean, it's it's been amazing what an improvement in the water quality of the Cuyahoga, right? So, I mean, that was the driving force. It's been amazing. So they're getting close. There's really only a couple more projects left, and that will be complete. One more big tunnel, actually, on the north side. So hopefully. Yeah, that sounds great. So kind of getting back to your company and what you're doing for water districts all over the country, can you tell me some of the other places other than Akron where you're operating and the kinds of benefits that you've been offering them, the kinds of challenges they've had maybe that might be a little different than here in Akron? Or I don't know, maybe they're all the same everywhere. No, no, no. So uh, Greensboro, North Carolina in particular actually has uh, PFAS and PFAS. 
PFOA compounds in their reservoirs. Uh, they've been doing some pilot testing. And part that we do is really help them optimize the pretreatment ahead of these advanced treatment options they're using. And we've been in place doing that work now for about 18 months or two years. And so again, here's a city that's faced with you know, actually having to remove those and doing the best job possible, even under conditions where they don't know what the final requirements are going to be. Like I said, those are supposed to be or at least the proposed regulations this week. So really, again, working with utilities that are dealing in live time with this being in their source waters and still providing it to their customers. And then I think that just, again, more broadly, Akron's going to kind of help us lead this, but where you provide support to the actual homeowner on how to reduce reduce their own risk at their house and how you do it cost effectively. So again, I think Akron's going to kind of lead this because they're seeing that pretreatment's cheap. And, you know, as long as there's some other additional quality and economic benefits. And then I've got honors project students are doing this work at the University of Akron to kind of put some pencil and calc to that does it make sense so i think because believe it or not there's more risk in your shower and what you the inhalation of taking a five or ten minute hot shower is greater than drinking the water all day long this is because why it's aerosolized and i'm breathing it yeah yeah these disinfection byproducts which are known carcinogens that arrive at people's taps it's not a matter of if they're there, it's what concentration they're at. And so you can remove them with a carbon filter, but they're volatile under you know warm water conditions. So when you take a shower and they'll volatilize. And so even so you're not removing them with your refrigerator filter, but you know, they're coming into the house and just coming straight out the shower head then. So and that risk can be five to ten times more than drinking the water you know, a couple gallons of the water. Okay, so does this mean I need to get a filter for my shower head? We're running those calc numbers right now. This is what I'm saying is you don't want cities necessarily want to be in the business of recommending treatment systems like Culligan or the other, you know, it's like, where's this, their role in that? But the short answer is that this is where Fontas, we think we can be a role. This is a fill a role of making sure these are, cost-effective treatment systems that are applicable and, you know, how do we provide some of that information? You basically can get a whole house carbon system that would remove everything that comes in the house. So whether you drink it or whether you shower or whatever, and those are, you know, again, we're doing that work right now to see which ones have actually been tested and make sure that it's not just, you know, you can go to Home Depot and buy a suite of these things, but just, to ballpark, they may be around $1,000 or so, you know, for the whole house system. But the filters may be changed every two years, like 8500 bucks. not too bad, right? You know, I mean, it's more or less that first initial cost. Sure. But that would treat 100% of the water coming in your house then. And, wow. Well, yeah. I had no idea. I mean, I figured once the city well, filtered it for me, I was good. No, this is that part of the, again, that disinfection byproducts are regulated. They're sampled from the system, the city. Yeah, I mean, you know, out in the system because they have to disinfect, right? Well, you want them putting chlorine in the water, but a byproduct of that is you form 
these DBPs. And so that's really kind of the origin story. I didn't realize it's now been almost 25 years ago how impactful those were. That's what kind of got me on that path at the university and then realizing, like I said, tell people and there's stuff out there that this isn't fear. It's known again that they volatilize. That's actually one of the ways they remove them is they'll airstrip them out. You see the big elevated storage tanks. Some cities will install airstripping in those tanks so that it will bubble water through them and you know they'll they'll come out in the air well, they really come out when you take a hot shower. See, so, so that's interesting to me. I mean, when I think about clean water, I know that the city puts it through these filters. And I just talked to Jeff and he said there's all yeah. these different filters and there's the wetlands and there's the chemicals they use. But yeah. what you're talking about is, is that all the chemicals that they use to keep me safe from, you know, the... Waterborne disease, but a byproduct yeah. of that is you form something that's not good. It's regulated. Okay. And- and they're in compliance with that, right? right. I mean, but those come out when you take a hot shower. They come out wow. of the air. I'm shocked, but this is one of those good news and bad news. I'm really glad you told me. And I'm really glad that I get to tell people like, hey, you know, there's an issue. On the other hand, what they're also going to be hearing is, well, we're going to have to spend a bunch of money on our house. And then every two years, we're going to have to spend more money. And all these years we've been breathing this and we thought we were safe. So that's not all that reassuring. Yeah, it's, again, because it makes sense, you know, that there's this dynamic. And so we're making the case internally. And I think the the city's embracing this, that there's some real benefits to, again, Akron already optimizes that treatment, but like where... Like this filter, if it costs $100, if you can extend the life of that filter by 20%, and right now the estimate is 60% of people have refrigerator filters. So at least from a drinking water perspective, 60, you know, there's 100,000 service connections roughly in Akron, 60,000 residences would benefit from some of these advanced treatment things that they do at the plant. And so those filters, everybody's filter would last 15% or 20% longer, whatever that number is. So part of that is at least try and find what's the engineering way, the most cost-effective way that what they can do and what the homeowner is still going to, these things are still going to arrive there. There's no way to remove all of them. Hmm. It's possible. So So in the short term, should we start taking more baths instead of showers or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. There you go. That that would make a lot of sense. Yes. So, by the way, because the we look at three exposure pathways: ingestion, drinking, inhalation. Right. So the, the shower, and then dermal through your skin, and dermal is nothing, basically nothing. So no risk. Yeah, I mean, relative in the drinking second ingestion, and then but the inhalation is is much higher risk. Wow. So, yeah, I had. Absolutely no idea. So the idea is that one of the things that the city is checking now is, okay, they recognize this is the case. And eventually they'll probably recommend in some shape or form to people that they ought to get these filters. So what you're doing on the back end then is trying to figure out what the city can do to make it so that the filter that I buy someday for my house, I won't have to get a new one all that often. Yeah. And again, what will be the economic piece of that, like if it costs the city $200,000 a year, but the downstream economic benefit to the citizens is a million dollars. So it makes sense 
then we have to figure out, well, how do we, how does the city recoup that 200 or not? Or, you know, I mean, all that. Is fun my stuff water was, bill going up again? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> that's outside. That's I mean, outside my purpose. Yeah. So yeah. I'm but, digging so deep for my city. Yeah. Of, not that I don't appreciate it. I do. But no. my water bill in Akron no. is way more than other people's in other cities. Yeah. Well, the last thing I'll say on that front is that Decision Blue is what we provide to the utilities to help them guide, you know, support these decisions. We're working on this eventually be a Decision Blue for the end user consumer. That's what, oh. that's what, yeah. So you could actually see what choices, depending on if you just want to reduce your drinking water risk or you want to reduce the whole spectrum of risk and look towards the whole house treatment systems and making sure that, that you're not sold a bag of goods. That was University of Akron civil engineering professor and Fontas Blue CEO, Christopher Miller. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590-WAKR and WAKR.net. <laughs>